Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Police Off the Cuff, a special edition of Real Crime Stories. I have two amazing guests today. We've retired Chief of the Department, Louis Anamone, who did 34 years on the NYPD. And for today's topic, he's the guru of responding to riots, uh, disorder control. He studied it all over the world. There's no one better to talk about this topic. And from the Sergeant's Benevolent Association Union, we have the Vice President, Vinnie Vallelong. Vinnie, welcome to the show. Uh, one of the things I wanted to talk about, the, as you guys know, the report just came out, the Department of Investigation report in regards to the NYPD's response to the riots. And, uh, well, we call them riots. They called them protests. Yeah. And it was very uncomplimentary towards the NYPD. And they came up with 20 recommendations. And Chief, I know you read the report. Just maybe want to give us a quick overview of uh, your interpretation of what they said. So to, to uh, begin with, uh, Billy and, and Vinny, and for everyone out there who's listening, the report looks to me to be so politically driven to begin with. Uh, so they had an agenda. It became obvious when you read the report, 110 or 111 pages worth. They had this uh, agenda that kind of tells us that the police are the problem. If you're going to have a demonstration or a protest, you know, the police have got to be, according to them, hands off. Do little or nothing. Uh, <laughs> the interesting thing to me was they... They objected also to the, the helmets, a protective riot helmet uh, they found offensive and threatening to people. Never mind your use of pepper spray or a baton or uh, uh, any of the other defensive techniques that we might be using. So it was a one sided attack. Uh, we can go through the list, you know, page by page and recommendation by recommendation, but. They, their heart really wasn't in this. They had no, if this was going to be some sort of a uh, impartial, really good hard look at uh, our performance. And by the way, we've had better days handling riots than we did yes. this summer. Yes. I'm gonna say that at the outset. But well, Chief, Chief, you know one of the things that kills you when everyone's doing a great job and then some knucklehead just tosses some girl to the ground. You're like, you know, that just makes everyone look horrendous, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, again, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good for the knucklehead, but there's no reason why everyone should then be painted, you know, as uh, being uh, incompetent or uh, ineffectual. This was one cop and you're gonna have this. Billy, we're humans. People, right. you know, you don't know the pressures that they're under. To begin with, this was during a, a COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, right. actually. So there's gotta be a little bit of leeway and we have to expect that humans are going to make mistakes. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, we, we didn't do the best job ever, but putting that aside for the moment, if you're gonna do a critique of this summer's police performance, how can you not interview the mayor? You can't tell me that there were not political orders that were given to the commissioner or the chief directly from the mayor or from the mayor's office. How can you not interview the governor? who also had a lot to say during the summer about the police performance or lack of performance. Right. So I want to know if you're going to do a look at this, what effect did those uh, 
phone calls or those face-to-face -face meetings have on the police performance and the orders that were given to the cops out in the street. You know, that wasn't, he, they indicate that they spoke to Monaghan and Shay, but they never said what they asked them or what their answers were. Right, right. Vinny, from the union perspective, why don't you want to give us a little uh, taste of what, what you guys felt and what your biggest arguments against this were? Well, just, just to piggyback off what the chief said, I mean, they never even interviewed the cops on the street. They never interviewed the frontline supervisors on the street as to what orders they were given. I mean, we know from our people, they were held back. They, I, I mean, I, I worked, in, in, I worked in, the, in the task force, in the Manhattan South Task Force during the early 90s. Right? And we handled demonstrations, we handled parades every single day. Right? And we, we had incidents at times, but they were always kept you know, to a minimum. The, the mayor's office, by, letting, by, by giving these orders of hands off, basically let the kids run wild throughout the whole entire city and neighborhoods that, that, that weren't, even, weren't even brought up. It's, you, know, you had the Bronx that pretty much was, uh, was almost burnt to the ground, it seemed like, in, in the neighborhood where they were at. Um, you know, and, and, and the chief's right, you know, the, the mayor, we all know the mayor knows exactly what was going on. He was getting updates. He was telling them what to do, what not to do. And he let it go. And if he says that he didn't know what was going on, then he was derelict in his duty as being mayor of the city. And, and I mean, our, our guys, our guys got their heads handed to them every single night. My I'm sorry, question, Vinny, I just wanted to show that was the Lieutenant who was hitting the head with the brick. I guess they didn't see that. They didn't see that one, you know? It, it, we all know that was like a flash probably on the news everyone everyone else seen um exactly what it was that was going on before that uh or actually after that when when the cops ran up on on them or the cop drew, drew his gun right after that incident and, and everyone painted it that the police were the demons in that picture but they didn't see everything else that built up before that right and you know right. and i'm sure the chief the chief would 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 definitely say where were the arrest teams you know where the arrest teams were? It was the SRG units, which were the task force units. They should never have been the arrest teams. Where was mounted? Mounted there was no mounted. There was no. They didn't want mounted there. You know, one of the things, Chief, I took from you. You always taught this was when you respond to a riot, you have to make, take action as a team, not as individuals, as a team. Supervisor-led team activity that was missing from this. Yeah, big time. That's that, that, that's the your secret, right? Of this, and then you, you minimize the opportunity, then Bill and Vinny, uh, for those independent cops to you know overreact maybe and knock someone to the ground that they shouldn't have. You got to operate as a sergeant and eight, a lieutenant and three sergeants, and you know twenty four. Team action, no independent action. The bosses give the direction, and and you know you move forward. But when you're starting off with the premise that, hey, we don't want you to do anything. That's very, very hard to, you know, for the cops. It's tough on the cops. When I see after the uh, initial day of that, uh, those uh, protest riots, that they were still showing up at some of these details in soft hats, that's unconscionable. To have the cops expose themselves like that, every one of them, you know, to injury, you had over 400 injuries. Right. I'm, you know, I'm wondering, you know, how many were wearing soft hats when they got hurt? How you know, Chief, another, interest, another interesting thing is that one out of seven of people arrested from these protests were from out of town. Yeah, there you go. And what does that tell you about the organization of it and that there were other forces behind this than it appeared? 
you know, that's a valid point to raise. I, I was hoping that we would have heard something from the intelligence division in that regard. I'm hoping they have an investigation, you know, that they've opened an investigation that they're trying to, you know, put the pieces together because it's clear, you know, as you watch this, that these people were uh, doing this stuff and it, and it was being coordinated. And if not interstate, certainly over the uh, internet right. and with their instant messaging back and forth, it was, this was an organized protest, but uh, organized by people who didn't want to uh, sit down and have a meeting with the police ahead of time so we could go over, as you did, Vinny, in Manhattan South, the route of the parade or the route of the protest or which particular building you wanted to protest at. And that was all handled ahead of time when people you know, had genuinely uh, the interest, uh, the First Amendment interest at heart. This was more than that. This was, this was not about the First Amendment. Well, Chief, what you were referring to before, and I'm just going to read you a number five of their recommendations. This is in regards to cops wearing helmets. To the extent NYPD deems the assignment of specialized units, officers in riot gear or hard uniforms potentially necessary to protest response, it should stage those officers in nearby areas not visible to protesters for deployment only if necessary. So they don't give a crap about the cops' health. They're worried about upsetting these snowflakes, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, it's, you know, it's a ridiculous, uh, it's a ridiculous recommendation. Uh, again, to the point that Vinny raised, they didn't interview any of these frontline cops. They didn't interview any experts in this field of policing, riots and disorders. You know, they have my number. They know where I am. You right, found exactly. me. <laughs> no, Chief, I had a new hip put in last year. And the DOI didn't consult on that with my surgeon. <laughs> but they know everything about policing. I'm surprised they don't know anything about replacing hips because they, you yeah, know. Exactly. Oh, God. You know, so, some of the other things, too, is that they should be almost like psychologists on the street. One, another one of their recommendations that they can differentiate between people who are peaceful protesters and people that are there to do harm. Yeah, tell me, tell me, I'm still trying to figure that out. How do you figure that out? (laughs) Would that be some sort of a profile they want you to develop? Yes, it sounds like that, you know. Right, profiling. Yeah. How do you, how are you supposed to know that? Vinny, you got any thoughts on that? Well, if if you remember, the way it used to be done is you, they would file for a permit and then we would know where they would go. We would sit, we would sit, who the group was, who the leaders were, which it seems as if that there were no leaders because, they, this report also tries to tries to demean our uh, community affairs guys, who are active at every demonstration, every parade, every big incident that's been in this city for probably the past 20, 30 years. These guys working, and they tried to demonize them in this report, basically stating that they didn't reach out to any of these leaders of these groups. Well, there was no leaders of these groups, right? So no, no one planned this. This wasn't in the past. Every everybody that wants to get their message out is allowed to get their message out in the city. We've had everyone from the Haitian demonstrations to, uh, I mean, the riots in Crown Heights were a little were a little different, but we have major parades, major demonstrations in front of the UN in the past, and we always know who the who the person is to go to to talk to. There was no one there this time. So for the mayor or anybody else in DOI, and this was definitely a hit piece on on the NYPD. Oh, I mean, that. it's pretty obvious that I mean the. the the mayor appoints the head of DOI and there's nothing well, in here. They're, to an, inpe- they're an independent investigative body though. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 
nobody, nobody on there, I, I believe, has any type of has any experience in law enforcement. So who are they to say? Or at least in in uh, in, in any of the uh, the way that you handle demonstrations. So I'm a little curious where where they got their experts from and who their experts were, because no one's even named in this report. Yeah, that's a, that's another interesting point. They talk about a, a chief who ran two departments somewhere, uh, somebody else who used to be in community affairs. But let me, uh, again, uh, just tag on your point, Penny. Uh, we know community affairs reaches out when they can, when there's somebody to talk to. But what about the responsibility, and I didn't see it mentioned in the report, of our political leadership, of our community leaderships? Were they reaching out? Did no. they reach out to us or to anyone else to say, hey, uh, you know, what can we do to help? How can we reduce the, uh, the violence? that these groups are, you know, engaging in. Well, most they of them were, they sided... were quiet, except when it came to police performance. Keith, most and of them sided with the demonstrators. And I don't know, a lot of people didn't see the violence. They said, oh, it's mostly peaceful. I was like, yeah. what? I'm seeing RMPs burned to the ground. I'm seeing stores looted, stores set on fire. What, what aren't you seeing that I'm seeing, you know? <laughs> it's, it's so true. This, so this, this was a one-sided report. Uh, we, well, we Chief, this is on only that, part right? one. Part two is from coming from the state. Letitia James, an attorney yeah. general, is doing a state oh, hitting the on this too. <clears throat> you know. So you know, you mentioned earlier, Billy, that they, you know they they talked about that this uh, this disorderly or <laughs> disorder control group. They actually took a shot on page thirty-six. They make an assertion with no facts that the disorder control response likely exacerbated the tensions during the protests about policing. And on the page earlier, they said, and listen to this, uh, Vinny, you're a former task force guy. They think that uh, uh, a police, policing a uh, demonstration that has to do a, about police should be handled differently from any other kind of First Amendment uh, Right. What in the world are they talking about? You know, I, where is the sense of impartiality? There is none. Right? No matter what your group is protesting, we treat everyone the same. Whether you're, you know, it's an anti-police because of the Diallo incident or the Luima incident. We live through that. We, we don't take sides with the demonstrators. We handle it exactly the same, whether it's a Thanksgiving Day parade or protest about the Thanksgiving Day parade. So, I mean, you know, they they they, they lost it with this what, very early on. Phenomenal about this whole thing is that we've handled this for how many how many decades now and have never had an incident. This administration that's in there now is a complete and total train wreck. They have dismantled the NYPD's units that take care of these type of things. They've given them different a different agenda on what it is, on how it is they're supposed to do their job. Mounted wasn't out that night where Mounted would have been out in the past um, during these riots, and they were riots. They weren't protests. Yeah. But if they were, if they were protests, the, the the leaders would have came up to speak with the NYPD just like it's been done in every other major incident in the past. Yeah, the, the other thing you know that we should say, uh, in your experience, my experience, I think we can agree, when you have a mob an outrageous mob that's rioting. They don't, they don't look to us to see whether or not we're wearing our hard hats to become enraged and to start engaging in looting or setting fires. We're not the trigger for this. 
And for anyone to write an, an official report that this is, you know, that we're exacerbating it, we're creating it just by being there and being prepared and with, uh, you know, defensive uh, uh, equipment on. This is crazy. This well, is absolutely crazy. What I think says volumes about what Vinny just said, during these riots, Warrants was out on the street and they grabbed two or three guys off the street in a textbook arrest. Very limited force. They scooped the guy up and they were criticized for it. <laughs> it shows that these people don't know what the hell they're talking about. Exactly. Billy, if, if, if Warrants that day, if this was old, old school uh, Salem, they would have been burned as witches. Right? Yeah. yeah. But it was a it was a really a textbook arrest with almost no force involved whatsoever, yep. and all these people were disturbed by what they saw. What, what world council, do they live in? City council was disturbed by what they saw. Where was city yeah. council during all of these riots? Sitting at exactly. home, COVID. Their job was to come out and be the leaders that they were elected to be. Stand up and get the communities organized in order to work with the police and stop what was going on. And none yeah. of them took their heads. Out of the out of the out of the out of the uh, rabbit hole, so to speak. Yeah, Shame I want to just read a statement by the Brooklyn Borough President, who is also a candidate for mayor, regarding the DOI report. The DOI report accurately details the tactical errors and acts of heavy-handed policing we saw on our streets this summer. To rebuild trust between police and communities, we must make immediate changes to the NYPD now as well as reforms that will change its culture for the future, including far more diversity in leadership and enhanced training in de-escalation and implicit bias. I have detailed my plans for the department will continue to demand these changes are made before the next mayor is in office. In particular, the NYPD must implement my recommendation for a new specially trained unit of officers with excellent communication and de-escalation skills Echoed in DOI's recommendations. Yeah. Good luck with that, uh, Mayor Adams. Good <laughs> luck with that. Jeez. I think he was this uh, resolute when he was a cop. Yeah, really. <laughs> really. Wow. How about their comment that the uh, department's public messaging wasn't up to snuff because it, <laughs> although they uh, acknowledge, we acknowledge the injuries to police officers, there wasn't the simultaneous acknowledgement of the pain and anger that gave rise to the protests. I mean, talk about snowflake. What was, yeah. you know. I went home and cried. I did. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. You know, there's another statement. I'd just like to read it to the, uh, the opposite, of course. This was from Pat Lynch, from the, the, the PBA president. The DOI report confirms what police officers knew on the first night of riots. Our city leaders sent us out with no plan, no strategy, no support to deal with unrest that was fundamentally different from any of the thousands of demonstrations that police officers successfully protect every single year. Nearly 400 police officers were injured, struck with bricks, bottles, fire extinguishers, and folding chairs because of the mixed messages emanating from City Hall in Albany. No amount of new training or strategizing will help while politicians continue to undermine police officers and embolden those who create chaos on our streets. Yeah. Pretty good, right? I think so. I think he sort of addressed all of the things that we're all talking about right here. Yeah. Yeah. How about their uh, comment about the uh, 
Again, you know, early in the report, they talk about it being a leaderless group. You know, there were no leaders. Uh, this was just a spontaneous, they tell me, spontaneous yeah. outrage at the events of the George Floyd case. And yet on page 39, they talk about the groups that were taking a leadership role in organizing these protests did not appear to be organizing or directing violence of any kind. So maybe they know something that, you know, I don't know. Maybe they've identified the leaders that were organizing this, but they put a nice little uh, comment in there that they weren't organizing or directing the violence. Yeah, I'd like to know who these people are, identify them and let them be interviewed by the uh, police that are doing the investigation. Vinny, you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, pretty much this report starts off with, with there should be accountability and, you know, so that we can actually have trust with the community. This report is the biggest um, act of mistrust that the city has put out. They're not giving any answers. They're not giving any, they're not saying who the accountability should go to, saying there's a lack in NYPD leadership, the lack in leadership overall. They don't name anybody else other than the cops. And it seems as if everybody else that was on the street, which is right now to me, and it just looks as if that they're throwing the working cop on the street under the bus. Um, you know, and this doesn't, this, this report doesn't show any type of uh, resolution, any ideas on how it is things can be fixed. This looks like a political, a political scapegoat for, for the mayor. You know, listen, they got 11 months left, 12 months left. We all know they're not going to, they're not going to change anything that went on inside this report. All right. They're going to ride their term out. This is to give them time before they're ready to leave everybody. And then they ride off into the sunset and they leave the next, per the next person with, with a big bag. I mean, this, 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 this DOI report, I don't, I don't know who pays the bill, but I can guarantee you it's definitely not worth the, the, the paper that it's put on. That it's written on. That's a good point. How about they, uh, they went after a few cops for uh, having their morning badges covering their uh, numbers? Don't we have uh, our numbers on our helmets? Yeah. How many years now we've been doing that? Badge numbers all over your helmets. At least your 30. Training. I mean, they have no idea. Absolutely no idea. Well, they're clueless. And one of the thing, another thing, uh, uh, Chief, regarding which is in your field more tactics, they want you to tell the protesters how you intend to, to you know, to police their event. Aren't you supposed to have some stealthiness? Aren't you supposed to have a secret to your tactics? Not tell people what you're going to do ahead of time, so that they can thwart your efforts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, and then. And if, there, if this was going to be an even-handed report, they should have put something in there that the demonstrators and the rioters and the protests should be, you know, equally sharing of their plans with us. Yes. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start throwing rocks when we get to Broadway and 33rd. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the pallet of bricks is on 48th. Yeah. No, this was, uh, this was the junior varsity that wrote this report. It yeah. Oh, but, but you know some of the other thing was it came out just the other day that basically the mayor threatened the police executives that you either adopt this or leave. Yeah. Well. Does that surprise I mean, you? It's a well, tough call. I would think that they they should have been, you know, interviewed about this. What do you think about this? Not yeah. adopt it my way or the highway. That's you know that's communism. You know. Yeah. My I also I would love to know. You know, at the planning meeting at the headquarters, whether it was in the chief of department's office or the police commissioner's office, what were the borough commanders told? 
you know, right. at that very high level, what were they told before the first day, before the second day of these events? Because that's they, they, can put, they can put a hood over their head and alter yeah. their voice <laughs> <laughs> when, they, when they testify to it. They Those weren't. Are questions they should have been asked. They definitely were not told exactly what it is that they should have been doing. Because if they were, we all know that within those first two nights, this would have been over. Over and done with. Well, you know, the proof of the pudding with that was when they had had enough at City Hall Park. They said, let's take the park. An hour later, it was, you know, that shows the NYPD knows how to do it if you let them. Yeah. Right? No, this was, uh, this was, oh, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall in the mayor's <laughs> office when the instructions were given. You know what? They were also pissed off at, Chief, and you know exactly what this is. They had a huge success police-wise on the Brooklyn Bridge when they used a technique that they referred to in the report as kettling. Yeah. And they were so pissed because it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it split up all the rioters and they were like, oh, shit, well, you know, yeah. cut the head off the horse, right? You said that numerous times. Yeah, exactly. And then they, you know, they almost, uh, they talk about the uh, cops making arrests only for curfew violations. Listen, when you issue an order for curfew, the idea is it's going to be enforced. Yes. Otherwise, it is no curfew, right? They're amazed that the, all of the concept of arrest. Yeah, yeah I don't think they are. understand that whole that whole concept. But uh, but this is a, like a disturbing thing. So going forward, how does the police department deal with this? What new toys can we use? They didn't let them use mounted. They didn't use drones to determine maybe the rioters are splitting up and going to other areas. We could follow them and see where they are. Aviation. I didn't see av. I saw NBC's helicopter up there. I never saw those four letters NYPD up in the air. So they had to have been ordered not to use those things. Oh, listen, uh, Vinny, you, you worked many a demonstration, as have I, as has Billy. Did you ever have a group that, that you were working with take over intersections, start directing traffic, holding no, I, We had a group, a large group enter a street before you secured it with the police? I mean, this was this was crazy. This was just craziness. Uh, this, that, that was proof that they were told to stand down. Yeah. They, they were told not to put their hands on anybody. And what, what, what initially the mayor's office let happen was they let our guys get abused day in and day out every single night. It's very, very demeaning to have to go out there and not be able to do your job. I mean, we, we've stood there before and we can, we'll, we'll get yelled at. And every once in a while, you get something thrown at you. But what these people were doing, you have to sit there and watch them rip your city apart. And you can't go in there and grab people and pull them out. That's disgusting. It really was. Yeah. Especially when we built it up in the, in the, during the early 90s and what we brought the city back to. Yeah. It breaks your heart. You're right. It breaks it your does. heart. And I, I, took, I took many a beating at a CompStat meeting for <laughs> 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 this crime drop. Jeez. So? Yeah, yeah, but you know, I don't think people or or they or know that they care that cops are human beings. And here they were working 12, 14 hour days, waking up and coming back and doing it all over again yeah. on top of COVID and everything else. And just yeah. when is the, what's the breaking point for a human being to act rationally under those conditions? Yeah. And I don't think they, they mentioned it at all in their report. There was no compassion, there was no empathy at all 
for the role of the police during these crazy, crazy days. Uh, mm. Just, just unfair from the from the beginning that when they put pen to paper, this was an unfair report. It wasn't impartial. It wasn't honest. Uh, and again, the big, big missing pieces are the interview with the mayor and the governor. So what, what were the, you know? What were the conversations? I didn't hear that. What were the conversations that went back and forth either with them or yeah. with the mayor and the brass of this department? Yeah. Because they don't tell you that. Yeah. yeah. The governor was very critical during this. You could pull up some video of him. He was very critical of the police. Oh, he, he was. Yeah. Absolutely was. After, after uh, Macy's was uh, burglarized. Yeah. And then, you, as you notice, he pulled the state police out because yeah. if they did something wrong, it would come back on him. And yeah. that's his whole MO. He wants nothing coming back on him, you know? A real stand-up guy. Yeah, he's oh, a real stand-up stand guy. guy, yeah. yeah. He takes yeah. responsibility, you know, put it on me. Put it. And then, then, it, then he said, hey, how about those 12,000 elderly people that thought, that wasn't my fault? <laughs> Unbelievable. You know, yeah. guys, if you don't mind, I'd like to segue right now into another topic that really makes everyone's blood boil and that's the diaphragm law and for our listeners what is described is the new york city council that really has no legislative ability a lot of them aren't even attorneys they drew up this law that says uh, a police officer in the course of making arrest if he restricts someone's diaphragm he can be charged with an a misdemeanor for, for doing that and the law was really hastily written and poorly written. But now the NYPD has to live with that law right now until they challenge it in the courts and hopefully get it reversed. Chief, your thoughts on this? So yeah, I'm not sure I want to uh, answer. Vinny, I, uh, I just finished a, uh, a call with Andrew uh, Quinn. Yeah. So I'm going to be doing something in this regard. I don't know if this is a, you know, if I should... I mean, I, I would, you know, without talking to Andrew and seeing whether or not you should even say anything. I mean, Bill, all due respect, I mean, it's in court right now. And especially if, if Chief Anamone is involved in this and, and we're going back and forth in emails, yeah. you know, it's better. I mean, I'll give you my opinion. Uh, and I'm sure that the, the chief would, would agree. I mean, it just prohibits us from doing our job, you know, and, and if, what message are you sending the, the police officer that has to go on the street and put his life on the line that, God forbid I put my hand around someone's neck or if I'm struggling with this individual who does not want to get locked up, who possibly has priors for whatever it is you don't even know and is a violent felon. If I put my hand on him the wrong way, I'm going to wind up going to jail or, or I'm going to get charged and put my family through, through a nightmare and a half. And he thinks twice about it, doesn't, doesn't do the job he's supposed to do because of this, because of this law. And the individual gets his gun and shoots a cop. Who's, who's that on at that point in time? I mean, we're fighting this in court for that reason, because it just handcuffs the police and it will handcuff the police across the whole entire country because that's where this will go at that point. Well, that's why a lot of other police departments neighboring New York City now refuse to come into New York City to enforce the law because they don't want to be part of that diaphragm law. Yep. And uh, not just that, you know, put this on top of bail reform and uh, emptying Rikers Island. Rolling cop killers, basically trying to empty the prisons. And think of how difficult now it is for a police officer to make an arrest when you've just stacked the deck 
against the police officer. You know, why would they want to put their hands on anyone? I remember they used to say when we first came on the job, take chances, take chances. Yeah. All right. You know, because you the department had your back. You know, yeah. I don't I'm not sure that they have your back anymore. I mean, we, I think we all watched that meeting where a chief uh, challenged um, chief of department Monaghan in regards to this when the diaphragm law was first passed, that cops were afraid to put their hands on anyone. And it got a little ugly in that meeting. I don't know if you guys watched it. No. Yeah, he's uh, a chief challenged him and said, cops are afraid to put their hands on people, arrest them. And he said, I wasn't afraid on that bridge, referring to when he got hit yeah. in the face. And, you know, the cops, they want to hear that you have their back. And I know that Dermot Shea, police commissioner, went to all the DAs and said, you're not going to follow this law, right? Oh, no, we won't follow it until the first high-profile case comes around, and then we're going to throw the book at the cop. You know? It's a tough way to, be, you know, to try to do your job. You know, you talk about uh, having our back. How about this, this whole idea? You, you can't put a guy in jail for carrying a gun. People are being shot. People are being murdered with firearms. Cops are making the, the gun collars. God bless them. And, you know, nobody's going to jail. It's a revolving door. Oh, it's, it's, it's even worse than that, you know. What, what message are you sending to the individual that is filing the complaint, who's standing up to that, that person and possibly in their neighborhood, um, or it could be an immigrant that, that is like, listen, this, this person, yeah, I want to report this. What message are you sending to them when that person's out before the police officer's done doing their paperwork and they're back out to torture and terrorize those, those individuals? You know, they talk about low-level crimes and, and you know, the, with bail reform and letting people out because it could be a marijuana, uh, you know, sale of marijuana. But I think we all know that it, on this conversation here that those guys usually have other people with them when they're selling. God forbid things go south. They're not peaceful individuals just selling bags of marijuana so everyone can get high and, and you know, be happy. They're there to make money. And if, they're, and if their business is threatened, they're going to take action against the people who are trying to buy or terrorize the people in the, in the surrounding area so that they can get a foothold in that area. So all you're doing is you're releasing the crime right back out into the street again and sending the message that, you know what, hey, you can do whatever you want because the cops really can't do anything. And I don't, I don't think they're taking into account somebody's prior records either, Vinny. So no. you, may, you may get me today for uh, selling marijuana, you know, in uh, Washington Square Park. But if I have a history of violence on my sheet, I'm not a guy that should be, you know, the politician should be letting out. Correct. Well, you know, Chief, there's a thing where you, you actually, I actually heard people say, oh, why are they listing the guy's record after he was arrested? Why shouldn't that be forgiven? And I remember the great John Jay professor, Maki Haberfeld, said, um, past behavior is a good indication of future behavior. And I was like, oh, that was brilliant. You should write a dissertation on that. I don't yeah. think I did a good imitation of her, but yeah. isn't that the truth? Of yeah. Past behavior, of course, is a very good indicator of how you're going to perform in the future. Exactly. And you know what we call those in, in policing, you know, for the public out there that may be watching, if it happens twice in a row, we call it a pattern. Pattern, yeah. It's a right. pattern. That's right. Two burglaries in a row. It's a pattern. I used to shake when you said that at Comstat. Because <laughs> I always tried to hide patterns. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you when he used to say that. And I was when I was when we were up on the stand on the podium, yeah. you always 
they had something in the back that we didn't have and they were going to they were going to drop it on us next so that's why i used to be scared <laughs> chief you know was an, another huge thing that we lost as the police yeah. and that was when they changed jumping the turnstile to a civil matter yeah. from a theft to service misdemeanor that was huge because yeah. as you know uh pe people that aren't police Someone jumps the turnstile, it's a misdemeanor. We have what's called search incidental to lawful arrest. And that's when we recover the guns, the knives, the drugs, all the bad intentions. But that they took that away from us. And that's a huge thing. It's, it's huge in the subway. And it's key to keeping the uh, subways safe for the uh, riding public. It's absolutely key. Uh, another thing they took away, uh, Billy, you may remember, is this Operation Clean Halls for the city projects, housing yes. and the- uh, uh, Trespass the affidavit. Trespass oh. affidavits for oh. private buildings yes. where owners would contact you, sign an affidavit, allowing the police to go in and patrol and arrest people for trespassing who didn't belong in the building or in the case of the housing developments who didn't live in there and didn't have legitimate reason for being there. Again, those were key to keeping those places safe. Yes. And don't the people that live there want that? Yeah, I think so. But apparently they don't have a voice, so they, their voice is not being heard. In the, they're, not, they're not being uh, asked. The city government. I remember in the 2-3, which was loaded with projects, people yeah, right. that didn't even live there, they'd break the locks on the front door and they set up business. You know, exactly. they set up their drug dealing business because now the door's open and when the popo come, they can just run into the building. Yeah. To escape, now, you know. Now they don't have to run because when the popo shows up, he he or she can't do anything about it. It's it's really disgraceful, you know, Chief. You, if you don't mind, I want to touch upon an yeah. article that you just wrote for John Jay College. And ah. it was on the subject. I posted it all over LinkedIn. I should be your agent. You know, I got you. People are going, hey, great article. Who that? Where would that come from? Anyway, the gist of the article is how to reduce violence in communities. And you, of course, have the old broken windows theory of how to do it, which, which has been proven to work. But now they have this social service. John Jay College, uh, the former president, Jeremy Travis, commissioned a whole group of uh, snowflakes to write this report on how to reduce violence in neighborhoods without the police. Good luck. I don't know if you read it, but uh, <laughs> if you haven't, you should read it because, you know, you, you, may, you may get sick to your stomach, but let's touch upon, upon your article. <laughs> so the, the idea was a, one of the professors, uh, Peter Moskos over at John Jay, challenged me. Hey, Louie, we keep saying things are tough, things are bad, violence is out of control. What can we do now? So, and the key word there was now, right, right away. What can we do today? So some of the ideas were in light of the fact that they're defunding and we're losing, a, I don't know, a billion dollars out of the budget. Someone ought to take a good hard look at how many actual police precincts we need. I saw that. I was shocked that you recommended getting yeah. rid of a bunch of them. Yeah. So that's, you know, they're a relic of an old time, uh, you know, when people didn't have cars. You needed a police station in every uh, in every neighborhood. We don't need 77 police precincts to police this city. Take a look at Chicago. Take a look at L.A. Take a look at Miami. 
all large cities, they're doing it with a lot less uh, buildings. Mm -hmm. so there'd be savings there immediately for the maintenance, the upkeep, the operation, but there'd be personnel savings. Anyone that's doing administrative work in those 12 or 15, whatever the number is that we close, can be redeployed to patrol. I love that. So the house mouse could disappear in, in your view of the world. Thank you. So instead of having 77 of these operations throughout the city, you know, cut that number down to a more rational, a more rational number. The other thing, you know, that we need to get back to, and it's very, you know, expensive, is foot patrol. Right. But without the phone, Bill, <laughs> Vinny. Right, right. I'll give you the radio. You go out there and you walk your post, but forget the phone. The right. phone is a distraction, and it's a dangerous distraction, in, in my estimation. They're not tactically aware. They don't have situational awareness when they're looking down at the phone to read the phone. Right. Uh, and singly, let's get them out there on the post, on these one-arm posts. You know, you have the uh, east side of Broadway. I'll walk the west side of Broadway. You'll give me a four or five block post, and I'll and then you know halfway through the night we'll switch sides. But let people see the cops in the neighborhoods, in those transportation centers, in the commercial areas, in the shopping areas, in the school you know in the school uh, zones. They should see cops walking the beat. Uh, I also talked a little bit about model precincts. You have I, is it about nine hundred that are going to be hired and graduating from the police academy. We ought to take three or four high problem precincts, high violence precincts, staff them with these people, staff them with sergeants on a voluntary basis, staff them with detectives on a voluntary basis, and let them use mostly foot patrol in those areas to, uh, and then compare how they do with violence as against uh, precincts who haven't made the change. Uh, well, those are a couple Chief, of one of the things you said, I'll just, uh, I know you can't remember everything you wrote in that <laughs> article. I, I can't either, but you said policing is local. Yeah. And that struck me. I was like, wow, that's really important because that was the whole premise in, I think it was in the early 80s of developing the RIP units. Yeah. Which were the robbery investigation uh, programs, which were the theory that most of these perps, they live here. They live in this community. So let's just develop right uh, a mug book system. Yeah. And we'll take a huge bite out of robberies with this investigation program because the perps live here. And that's yeah. what you said. Policing yeah. is local. Exactly. Policing is local. So you need the local precinct commander or the PSA commander or the transit district commander running the show. Let them have the authority and hold them accountable and responsible, but give them the authority. It's, you know, I was at John Jay, Vinny. It's a, great, it's a great idea. And you know what? It's not, it's not something new. Um, you know, you know, as well as I, I remember when I was walking a foot post um, and we were out there, you got to know everyone in the neighborhood. You got to know who the bad guys were. You got to know who came out of jail when the when burglary started going up and who that individual was who lived in the area and the, and the type of burglary he did. And it got me from knowing the people in, in the in the command when, when a crime was committed, when I went up to the squad, you knew what direction to look into. You weren't totally blind. You weren't just driving around all night long and just yeah. going from job to job. 
You know, you have you have investment in that community. That's the, that's the only way to learn the job. Number one, in my belief, is on your two feet. Yep, and learn and learn the community. Yeah, you, you build build bond with the community also. You're learning how to do your job, and you're learning who's there in the community in this community. You may or may not have you know prior knowledge of the neighborhood, but you're going to learn it when you're out there walking. And you also railed against um, over-specialization. Oh. We were more or less, the NYPD was more or less forced to do that with uh, counterterrorism, joint terrorist task force, uh, a lot of these specialized units that drain the personnel from, you know, from the whole patrol force. Yeah. Uh, you want to comment on that? Well, I think rather than telling them, you know, to do away with units, I talked a little bit about the self-portrait. It's time now for the department to do a self-portrait. And I'm talking from the bottom all the way up to the top. What units, where are people working? Why are they there? Sometimes the corporate memory, you know, units are established 10, 15, 30 years ago for a specific reason. And they continue because nobody, nobody shut them down or taken a look at the need for that particular unit. Does anyone miss safe loft and truck? GCIU. And then the staffing of those units. Sometimes we set the staffing, you know, years, years ago when maybe there was more of a, uh, an imminent threat uh, and you needed X amount of people in intel or in counterterrorism. Do we need that much now? You know, and. I, I'm outside the department. I can't say. I can only say that they, they ought to take a good, hard look at how much we've specialized, what can we do without right now, or can do with, but with a little bit less, and then redeploy those people into the squads or into patrol where they're needed. Now, more than ever, we need people out on patrol. Right. Well, we were, you always taught from day one in the academy that Patrol is the backbone of the, uh, the department, but yet, you know, everyone wants to get off of patrol. You know, yeah. it's the most dangerous unit to be in. It's the, and not just the chance of getting killed, but getting civilian complaints, getting complaints from your, your supervisors, getting complaints from the community. So everyone wants to get off patrol. You know? Yeah, it's, it's the backbone of the department, Bill, but often it's treated as if, as if it was the uh, back end of a yeah, horse. You're right. <laughs> It's, it's so true. You know, another thing we hear all the time is they need more training. I mean, what horse shit? I mean, training is great. But you know something? No one has the resolve to give cops the amount of training they need because it takes them off the road. Yeah. And they're not going to pay for that. Yeah. So when they hear them say that, they really don't mean it. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, a dollar spent on training, I don't know how much it saves you down the road in court settlements. No, and I agree. This city, I agree. The way this city flips and you know pays pays out money without even going to trial in you know the vast majority of these cases, they really ought to talk about having a backbone. They ought to develop one. And, Absolutely. Uh, it's just that some of this training, you know, is maybe not be uh, what, what I would call uh, tactically <laughs> appropriate. Chief, when you, when you took over as um, chief of patrol, you established the first thing I ever saw was anti-crime training. That yeah. was never done. You, it, was, it was on the street, on yeah. the job training, 
And I thought it was great, I, you know, because working in plain clothes is a whole different science. Because sure. you've been in uniform, you don't realize what it means, the stealthiness of being in plain clothes. No, that guy did not make you. Stop giving him the credit for that, right? And how you can move in and out of places much easier in plain clothes. And you gave training for that. Why did they stop that? Yeah, that's a, that's a good. That's a real good question. I, I don't know why they stopped. Because I, I, I'll answer it. No one's serious about training. They're full of shit. Yeah, yeah. Always, oh yeah, we need more training. And then when it comes down to it, oh, we can't spare these guys to go to training. Yeah. So anti-crime. Yeah. That's it. Will anti-crime ever come back? It's one of the most important units, in my opinion, on the police department. You know, and they were taking the guns off the street. They were making the robbery arrests, you know, the violent arrests on the street. They're not out there anymore. You know, same putting a uniformed cop in an unmarked car. It's not the same. Yeah, no, it's not. So the uh, the tips, you know, for uh, anti-crime training, right, right off the bat, when you're in uniform. I used to tell cops, you look people in the eye. You make eye contact, right? When you're in uniform. When you're in civilian clothes, you don't. Right. Because in this city, the only two people that look you in the eye are the psychos. It's a challenge. It's like the animal community. <laughs> the animal kingdom, don't challenge that guy. <laughs> but as cops, we do that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, when you're working in plain clothes, you got to learn to get out of that habit. You know, you don't stare people down. Right. You don't look them in the, because you're giving yourself away then. Uh, and speed and surprise are your best tactical, right? Absolutely. Before they know what hit them, you have them in cuffs. Or before they even, after they do the crime and they're running away, they think they're home free and there you are waiting at the corner to yeah. tackle them, you know? And they're like, oh shit, how did they know I did that? Well, because we were watching you for the past hour, you know? <laughs> That was the greatest feeling in anti-crime. Like yeah. watch them do a yeah. crime and then run to you instead of away from you, you know? Yeah. And they were just Perfect. beautiful. Perfect. So this has been an unbelievably enlightening almost hour. One of the things you did, Chief, that I always, I learned a lot from you actually, you know? Yeah. And one of the things you always did was that you critiqued the response, you critiqued the CompStat meeting, you critiqued how we responded to that uh, demonstration. You critiqued how we responded to a major incident. And I think that's maybe lost now too. I don't know if they're still doing that. Well, I mean, I, I still haven't seen or heard if there was an NYPD critique of, uh, you know, an internal critique. Yes. What, you know, there should have been. That's and important. You know, on a daily basis, you do the hot wash. You know, at the end of the evening or the end of the morning, you sit down, hey, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? But long term, you need you, need, you needed to take a look at that. I know they've done they've implemented some of this disorder control training uh, citywide, I guess now. So that's probably a recognition that you know that maybe there were people there that, that hadn't been trained in years. I understand. No more red envelope drills. You know, right. you shake up the entire city with those. Send everybody to the 13th precinct, you know, on a Friday night or a Saturday night and just give them patrol posts, but just to test ourselves and see if we could do it. It's important. It's important. Yeah. <laughs> it's critically know. important. You know, I was uh, talking about, I was talking to Chief, uh, retired Chief Joe Herbert recently, and we discussed uh, briefly, but the Mumbai it's attacks. 
investigator, Joe Herbert. Great, yeah. Investigator. But we discussed the Mumbai attacks and how that could happen anyway, yeah. really. And yeah. how you would, re you know, respond to something like that, how to prepare to respond to that. And of course, we have an emergency service unit that's great. But the problem is the logistics. If they attacked in Times Square, getting there could take 10 to 15 minutes, unless you have the post, like you say, already out there, right? Yeah. The posts are already sitting uh, in that location so they can respond quickly to that. You know. so we, we got, uh, you know, from my looking at what transpired over the uh, over the summer here in the city, you had a little mini version of that. You had multiple groups showing up. And, you know, the, the, the other key thing about demonstrations, when they're legit, they're held in daylight. When people start roaming, you know, at 8, 9, 10, 11 o'clock at night, that's not a good sign. No. But we had them in multiple boroughs at the same time. You had stuff in the Bronx, in Brooklyn, and Manhattan. So that could have been your training run for a Mumbai type of an attack. What, what I thought I left in place when I retired in 99 was Operation Archangel. So that each borough would be equipped to stand alone if there was shit going on anywhere else or in multiple places in the city, they would have a core group of people from emergency service or some of the other specialty units mounted, et cetera, that would know to respond to that borough. And then they'd, they'd all be on their own. They'd have to handle whatever was happening in Queens with Queens resources, because Manhattan would be handling Manhattan with Manhattan resources. Right. So that's a, a, you know, a model for getting this done and not getting you know, behind the eight ball. Well, I think that all, all of the uh, disorder control work that you did over the years, uh, I can't say it's out the window because I'm sure a lot of the stuff has been carried on, but not all of the stuff. Yeah. And like you say, the practice, the rehearsals, the training, that needs to be done in order to stay sharp. It's just like, you know, if you're a Navy SEAL, you know, you're not going to grow a beer belly. You know, you're going to train every day to, to be ready for when, when it happens, right? And that's maybe the department's growing a beer belly. I don't know. <laughs> I had to throw a joke in there once in a while. You know, this has been so. I resemble that remark. <laughs> Me too. I'm, I'm resembling that remark too lately. <laughs> this has been uh, so great talking with you guys. And uh, it's just the, the problems that confront uh, us in 2020 were probably, uh, we haven't seen a lot of these before. There's because I think the attacks are coming from the progressive political system more than from the public. And so it's sort of disarming the NYPD and not just the NYPD, the other police departments across the nation. And we're going to have to see how policing as a profession deals with this. It's yeah. very difficult when they take away all the tools you need to do your job. Yeah. You, know? Well, you know, the public has got to hear from police leaders you know, working police leaders, people that are in these positions now. So they're going to have to stand up at some point and start speaking truth to power. Well, myself as a civilian now, I don't want the police defunded. I want as much police out there as possible to do, protect myself and my family, you know? And I think you do too. And Vinny, you do too. I, even if you aren't, if you're retired, you're not in this profession any longer. Defunding the police is the most ridiculous concept I've ever heard. Bill, I, I was 
we've gone out to churches up in Harlem, uh, in parts of uh, Brooklyn, and I personally have spoken in front of um, congregations, and they do not despise the police at all. They don't know what's going on. They, they the message that they that they reiterate is that we want you here. We don't want we don't we don't when you leave. That's when the bad element comes out, and they put our kids at risk. You know, you have to worry about, you know, the, the grandparent going to the going to the bodega and a, and a stray round going by because guys are allowed to hang out on the street corner. They say they we want you. We don't we don't want you to, get, to go away. They, they want to have a better relationship with us. And the first thing I've asked them was, has the job ever reached has, has anyone from the city or the job ever reached out to you to to make to, to give you a voice? And, the, and this is the pastors of these communities. And the answer is no. I, I, don't it. I, re I really don't. I mean, we all listen. We love this job. If people think we go out there to, you know, with the with, with the mindset that we're going to hurt people, that's the farthest thing from our minds. We got, we have, we have some, we have, and I know I am very prideful when it comes to this job. My dad was a cop, um, you know, and I love doing it. Thirty years, and I, you know, I would, I don't know if I would do it over again. Yeah, that, that's a that's a tough thing to say. By the way, Vinny, was that Tony? Yeah, it was. We were trainees together. You know, yeah, he tells me that all the time. Oh my God, you're his son. Yeah, I am. Jeez. <laughs> Small world. world, right? <laughs> yeah. God. Wow. So we're going to start to wrap it up, Chief. Yeah. Last, last words. No, you know, that's it. The, uh, I think we've said all we could say about the DOI. Uh, we, need, we need leadership now more than ever from the police department. Uh, it's not easy. I, I'm not telling anyone that it's, uh, you know, that it's easy to do, but we need the moral courage to speak truth to power. And there's a lot of truth that has to be spoken. Thanks. Uh, I don't think I could have said it any better than that, Chief. Well, that's, uh, that's our show for today. I'm Bill Cannon. Uh, this has been Chief Louis Anamone, retired NYPD, Vice President of the SBA, Vinnie Vallelong. And this has been Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories.